0: Welcome to gen z hoops the gen z basketball coaching and sports business show on this podcast you'll learn from professional players coaches and executives from all over the world and see the court in a brand new way and now joining you courtside your gen z host john harta hey Alex
1: what's going on
0: what's going on with you how you doing
1: i having, having a great day. Really excited to have you on. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, definitely, uh, to jump right into all the cool stuff you've been doing. Uh, it's just awesome, like, right? Just the, yeah, definitely the energy we're bringing to this call. Uh, so really excited to kind of jump right into things with you. I'm curious, right, just oh. to start, uh, maybe where all this passion came from. Where did you first kind of fall in for the game? Right? We, uh, no, noticing that, obviously, you started playing. Yeah, we, we, um, at a young age, like, where did all that stuff come from?
0: No, it came from my dad, to be honest with you. Uh My dad brought me the love and joy for the game. Started at a young age. I'm an 80s baby, so, you know, listening and watching the game from radio, you know, driving in the cars and situations like that. The old days, my dad was from Chicago. So we got a chance to actually watch it. Michael Jordan play, Scottie Pippen, the real Chicago Bulls, Bird and all those guys, the Boston, the rivals and all those stuff. So I grew a fond of the game just by watching it, being a student. The excitement, the joy of it came from that standpoint at five years old.
1: I mean, that's, that's, that's so awesome to hear about it. And it's, it's great kind of hearing that backstory about, about really everyone. Just, there's obviously so much that goes behind that passion. I'm curious, yeah. obviously, right? So you go, go on a pepper dive. What really was was so central and you wanted to go to obviously playing under the the late great Paul Westfall. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was mm-hmm. so much maybe history going into that, into that program. What made you really decide that that was the place for you to go and have such a great four years there? Man,
0: I just I just definitely wanted to, you know, contribute to what you said. Paul Westfall was a, a monster, a hell of a player and even more of a, a gentle giant from that standpoint. The love and admiration that he had just for a human being, you know, and and to shed some light onto the story of actually how I came into Pepperdine was all because of him. You know, him being a, a coach at that time, a head coach, his first time being a head coach, he had one scholarship I didn't know nothing about. Um, me coming from California, I had an AAU coach that actually had the opportunity to take me and a lot of other players out to Malibu you know, and um, I didn't know what Malibu was. I I had no clue, you know what I mean? A kid coming from Compton, California, um, I thought it was a facade from that standpoint, you know? So we loaded up the truck, hopped in the van, all got to Malibu. It was a long trip, so I was really sleepy at the time, just from driving on PCH road, seeing the beautiful things at that standpoint. When we got there, it was literally like a, like, you know, a heaven's gate opening up um, in Malibu. So. I was really shocked and wow from the beauty, from the fresh air, you know, all those things. The senses was in heightened from that standpoint. And when I got into the gym, I saw Paul Westfall. I saw the assistants. I saw so many kids warming up and getting ready. So I was like, OK, this is going to be really fun. To go back to the standpoint of me, uh, me graduating that year, I was almost on the verge of going to um, a prep school, Salisbury Prep School in Connecticut. So I had my mind made up from that standpoint that I was going to go to prep school, do another year. I'm similar to what my brother did, but I was um, introduced through this open gym, open run. I just play like there was no tomorrow. For me coming from California to have an open gym that you can play in, me playing outside all my life pretty much. I was really excited about that, you know, let alone just seeing, you know, a coaching staff looking at me. I played my butt off. I really did, and the team that I was on, we got to the playoffs, or whatever you call it, the finals, and we got a chance to play on the long side, the long court, where the you know the college players played at on the on the real court. So uh, my team won, and um, I remember clearly that that after that game, I was getting some water, and I saw my AAU coach. He was actually talking to Paul Westfall and the other assistants, and um, they came over to me and they said, uh, "This is Paul Westfall." He introduced himself. And uh, I kind of was in shock, you know what I mean? A a guy from his standards talking to me, you know, let alone just like just knowing where he came from, from California, USC dominant force, seeing him coach Charles Barkley all the way to the finals. Those those things rung in my ear from that standpoint. And um, it was this amazing thing. And then he was like, I just want to see if you can run a 17 for me. A 17, if nobody knows about it, is just the left of the court touching lines back and forth. I said, "Cool, no problem." I was never thinking anything negative, just a workout. So I said, "Cool." I got on the line, I was about to run, so he pulled me up and he was like, "I just wanted to see if you was going to do it. If he you were coaching." From right then and there, he broke went to go get something to eat, came back. He had a paper, a brown bag in his hand, a paper, and uh, he called me over. He talked to me. One of the things that really touched dear to me what he said. He was, "What is your future? You know, what are your goals outside of college? Uh, what do you want to do in a couple of years?" And I just literally told him I want to be an NBA player. You know, I, I looked at him dead in his eyes. And from that standpoint on, he knew what my goals were. He wanted me to achieve those, you know. And him being able to coach such phenomenal players in that realm of the NBA, he coached me just like that. So that was the most important thing where I was being already coached in an NBA standpoint setting. And it helped me catapult my career to the NBA.
1: It's huge. And thank you so much for going into that story and kind of giving us that background as to how, right? because right. obviously we're going to talk about your, your your NBA career and how that all happened. It all obviously yeah. starts with, with obviously having a great support system and, but also being coachable enough to take what the support system is able to give you. And obviously having a, a Hall of Fame coach like Paul Westphal um, is, is huge in that. And obviously right, rest in peace to him because of, of, I'm sure, the impact he had on the game and obviously on yourself, but definitely incredible to think of the impact of all that. Um, I'm, I'm curious now, right? So you were talking about how that was your goal was to, to be an NBA player. I'm um, kind of mm-hmm. leading into into the 2005 draft right right well can you kind of tell us maybe what's going through your head as you're waiting for for, for your number to get called right yeah what is the interest? like? Are, like are you watching on tv are, are you waiting for the, on the phone like what's happening there
0: oh man i can remember like it was yesterday those memories is, is, is burnt in my memory forever i was really to go back to getting to that point i went through so many workouts for teams i went to the combine and played in front of you know the elite players from north carolina from You know, Louisville from all those, you know, big time schools, Wake Forest back in the day when they were huge um, conglomerate schools. And I held my own from that standpoint. And a lot of people didn't know who I was coming from a a mid-major Pepperdine. They were in shock the way I played. They really were playing against Nate Robinson, Chris Paul as well, you know, going up against these guys. Actually, Chris Paul didn't actually even have to play, but he was there in the gym. But just a lot of those guys that I was actually seeing already given the opportunity of being the top five, top 10. I was given the chance to actually play against a lot of those guys. So me being who I was, just being a sponge, a dog, I was gifted to a point, but I was never really gifted um, in a situation where, I was taking my attitude, my talents uh, for granted. i always been a workhorse, just learning the game and being a sponge, you know, and making myself an NBA player. I just took that admiration all the way through um, every single trial, every single workout. I had a lot of teams telling me they were going to pick me. A couple of teams was like, we were surprised the way you played. Given the fact that you played that good, we only have a first round pick. We can't even pick you because... <laughs> the fans would boo you, us, you know what I mean? Not knowing who you were. But it was just really just a motivation to keep pushing. And I remember the day I walked into the Detroit Pistons uh, arena, I pretty much didn't even touch a ball except for the shooting drills. It was just all defense, defense, defense. And at the end of that workout, um, Joe Dumars was the GM at the time. And he was like, man, we just wanted to see if you can play defense. You know, we know you can shoot the ball. We know you're a hell of a scorer. Boys that you have, the, the the timing and stuff like that. We wanted to see if you had the heart to play defense at this level. At the end of that, he was like, man, we're gonna, we're gonna really pick you, pick you up. We have the last pick, we're gonna pick you up. So leading all the way to that, man, uh, getting get into the first round, I knew my name wasn't gonna get called, Getting to the second round. Now you gotta understand, I had my church members, I had my family, I had my, my friends all in one room and um in in the hotel, LAX Airport. And we were all huddled in, didn't know what to expect. All I had in my mind was the Detroit Pistons was going to pick him. I knew they would have the 56th pick, uh, so I was decided. They called Jason Maxill. It came down to the 56th pick <laughs> they called Amir Johnson. So I was really pissed. I was really holding my head mad for the simple fact that I thought they lied to me. And I didn't know they had the 60th pick. So after they called Amir Johnson, they went to commercials. I got a call from Joe Dumars. Um, He was talking to my agent. My agent gave me the phone. We got all the way to the 59th pick. I'm still on the phone with Joe Dumars. He said, we got you. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) You don't have no more picks. As soon as I said that, the commissioner, that's the commissioner now, he literally said my name. The reel came up with my highlights. I was in shock. I dropped the phone. I was just crying. My family was so excited, jumping, cheerful. You know, my church family was really excited. And my life changed from that standpoint.
1: I mean I love that. that's absolutely beautiful in, in hearing that story. So I mean thank you, thank you so much for sharing that because obviously I I could so imagine, right? 50, 51, 52 and going on and, and and the suspense building. I mean of yeah. course I mean it's a, it's a good thing that right you were obviously very respectful on that phone call and, and, and knowing wait, oh, oh you guys do have another pick. Okay, wow. Instead of instead of maybe saying, Wait, what <laughs> do you guys pick me? And then and then they have that pick left. Imagine. But definitely definitely awesome hearing about that. Um and how that all plays out. it's obviously great. And what's even better is thinking about the, the qualities that you showed, right? Maybe outside of your scoring prowess that, that made Detroit like you so much, right? That made a hall of famer like joe dumars takes such a liking to you and obviously yeah. you joined a team in, in the pistons right maybe um people now maybe don't don't think of them as that or, but in, in 05 they were coming off back-to-back title runs where they almost went back-to-back in 05 um, i right. mean they were going to make a bunch more used to conference finals so can you talk to us maybe a little bit about what what that dynamic like was with that team um and seeing a team that, that, that was so bought into the, to both the defensive side but also winning basketball games right that, that, was, your, that was your first welcome to the nba thing with such, yeah. a, with such a, a, a great organization
0: Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing organization from the standpoint, just the leadership that they had um, from the front office all the way down to, you know, the assistants to the coaching staff. Flip Saunders, rest in peace to him and his legend. Legacy for sure. Um, It was it was just a a learning curve and understanding of how to win, you know, and there's different ways of winning. You know, you can win from from a standpoint of, I would say, like uh, individual accolades but a team organization community that came together and won as a unit, as one uh, was something special. And it was something that you had to learn how to really do. And it's more, more than anything, just a sacrifice. What can you bring to the table and what you're willing to sacrifice in order to make this circle a whole, you know? So I learned a lot of valuable lessons from great athletes. I can go down the list of the guys that was on this team, you know, Lindsay Hunter, Chauncey Billups, Rip Hamilton, uh, Rashid Wallace, Ben Wallace, all those names, Tayshawn Prince, all those names were guys that actually made themselves who they were. They weren't known household names. You know what I mean? Those were guys that were left behind and thought that, you know, they were finished and done and they made themselves who they were, let alone they made themselves as underdogs that they were a reckless organization where nothing was going to come in that way. If you're going to get a win, you're going to definitely have to actually fight for it, you know. So that leadership, let alone, just gave me some some toolage to understand how to go about outside the court and in the court. You know what I mean? On my daily walk. And it, it brought so much structure for me to carry on throughout my career later on, all the way up to this point. You know, so I really owe a huge, huge respect for those gentlemen that actually paved that way and showed me. And I'm really honored to actually be on a team for my first year to learn and sit down and develop my skills as far as my mentals and use it in how to apply my, my athletic ability by thinking the game critically down the stretch. and watching Mr. Big Shot Rick Chauncey Billups control the situation as a point guard standpoint watching Rip Hamilton miss 12, 13 shots and still be Rip Hamilton, you know, the concentration that he had of actually knowing that the next shot was going on. Ch- Tayshawn Prince of how he was been a leader just by his actions, you know, and, and how he carried himself. A lot of people didn't understand that he was the beacon, the, the whole structure of it all, because when he did talk, people were really a sponge because he didn't talk that much. You know, just uh, how the unselfishness of Ben Wallace Didn't care nothing about scoring a basketball, but just knowing what his role was from that standpoint. And also the leadership from um, Rasheed Wallace, let alone just being the big brother of the whole team, knowing that he has your back. You know what I mean? No matter what. So the list goes on of those things that carried and made the whole team from that standpoint.
1: Well, I mean, def- definitely, I can I, I, I imagine why right, you're listening to all these names and they're, they're guys that are maybe so underrated in terms of maybe the, the, the perception, right? maybe fans forget, but I, the real fans know what kind of those guys are all about it and how important that team was in NBA history. So it's obviously so cool to think that you being a part of that and, and, and seeing that culture day in and day out. I'm curious, so <laughs> I, I'm guessing when you get interviewed by most Americans, they don't really know how to talk about Olympiacos and your time over in Greece. When um, you're talking mm-hmm. to a Greek American, so I'm, 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 I'm a little bit better at that than most. So I hope I could ask some pretty good questions about that, but <laughs> I'm curious, right? So you go over to Greece. Can you talk to us a little bit about that transition over to play overseas? So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, right, have you had you ever probably uh, been to a country like Greece before? What, what was that experience like in terms of making the decision to go there? Like, can you walk yeah. us through maybe that that first year and, and, and how different it was from a team like the Pistons?
0: Man, it was really different. It was really different to a point where I actually sat down through a whole season and didn't hear my name called. Just really been anxious, ready to actually showcase my talent, you know, just... Ready to go from a whole year been in the NBA, been a little bit of time in the G League, and exploding from that standpoint of of playing and getting a taste of what I can do and actually homing and showing my skill set uh, from that level. And then from after that year, I was really eager to play basketball. You know, getting back to myself of playing basketball and, and using all the tools that I had, and um, I knew that those guys weren't going away as far as next year. Detroit Pistons actually had me to go back next year and and sign with them, but I felt that the same situation was going to happen again. Me going to the G League, uh, me going, sitting down, not seeing my jersey for a very long time. So I was really just thinking about the next opportunity. And my agent at the time, he introduced me to uh, Olympiacos. I knew nothing about Europe, literally nothing. (laughs) <laughs> at all. Um, I didn't know nobody um, that played in the Euroleague. I didn't know anybody that played in Europe, let alone, you know, just had no way of actually getting information. So what I did was I took a trip to Olympiakos, to Greece, Athens, and I saw the beautiful, wonderful things that it had. Um, I saw the food, how amazing it was. Just the lifestyle was completely different. And uh, I took into that and I really said that this was going to be something that I was wanting and sought out. I was going to make it the best opportunity for me. So with that being said, I always kept great contact with the Detroit Pistons. I let them know that what I was going to do. And they said, completely fine. We're going to follow you. We're going to hold your rights. We're going to make sure that, you know, you're still going to be a part of the team. Um, Just afar. And that actually gave me some incentive to knowing that they were going to be still watching me. I was going to be a part of that organization, the team somehow, some way. So that gave me a boost to actually making sure that I was going to hold myself accountable to finishing every task, going into something and, and actually being aggressive at it. You know what I mean? Not thinking lightly. was just going to be, you know, something I was just going to get a check from and just get away. I wanted to get back into the league. I wanted to show that I was going to be able to get back into the league. And, um, yeah, I was really eager to see what I can do from that standpoint of the heckling crowd of Olympiacos. And it was just amazing just to be welcome. I can remember just coming out of that tunnel as far as the um, airport and all the fans were cheering my name and jumping and yelling and screaming, man. It was amazing. It really was. And the best thing about it too, I had my brother there majority of the time. So I had a, a, a great mind and a great ear where even though I was doing going down in my mind mentally, um, away from home, missing it, Um, I had my brother there to encourage me to keep driving, keep pushing. So that was definitely huge for me, too, as well.
1: I can only imagine and thinking about just obviously the atmosphere and especially just in terms of how crazy the fans are there in terms of like coming out of the airport, right? Everyone's screaming your name. Oh, can you okay, tell us a little bit I'm curious about your your reaction, man. I mean, about you from your first but I think I got ghost game, right? Obviously, the, yeah. you know, one of the greatest rivalries in all of sports. That game itself is incredible. And we went yeah. one time when I, when I was over playing Greece and there, everyone was shooting flares in the in the, in the the gym and I was like, well, like, what, <laughs> what is that? This makes the NBA look like kindergarten. Like what is happening right here? Yeah. This should never, none of, there's so many things happening that would never happen in an NBA game. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit about maybe, right? So you're sitting there in layup lines, you're looking up like, what is going on? I got got a million
0: stories as far as the rival, the stuff that goes on and just the craziest things, man. I mean, the flare guns was definitely one of them where it was kind of alarming. Like nobody's going to say anything at all. Like I'm dribbling to half court against Cheska and I see a flare gun go over my head and hit the other team's rival fans, you know, in the chest with a flare. I'm like, what the heck? And you got to play through it. Also, pepper spray. You know what I mean? Because the fans are getting crazy. The, the police rioting and, and spraying pepper spray. And it's a cloud of pepper spray over your, hip, your your face. And it's all in your eyes. And we had to play through it against uh, partisan. You know what I mean? I remember those games vividly. People throwing melting hot quarters and launching them at the stands. Um, hitting my, my trainers in the eye. And he has a bloody eye. And he has to run into the to the locker room and stuff like that. Crazy things. You know, Panathinaikos, oh, the list goes on. They would have huge speakers right underneath over us. So every time the coach would call timeout, they would blast music. So we couldn't even hear what the coach was saying. They threw a bunch of water as far as the fans when it was time for us to warm up and they wouldn't clean it up. You know what I mean? While the other team, Panathinaikos, would be warming up fresh and ready, we would have a puddle of water on our, <laughs> on our side so the list goes on of the things that went that we had to go through but I really loved man I can't express that I love the sirens the yelling the heckling even more so just playing against the enemy as far as the the opponents just quieting those teams fans was the most oh the most exciting thing for me man it really was I don't know why it was but it was, I can play through that atmosphere. It, you know, you got a kid coming from, from Pepperdine when the fans were like, you know, it seemed like 10 or 12, you know, the amount of fans that were in those gyms as far as Pantheonikos, like a lot, Olympiacos, you know. Um, I remember one conversation I had with our, our, our leader, Scooney Penn, at the time that played with us in Olympiacos. And we were literally stretching. And I was like, this is literally the first game of EuroLeague and we played Tau. And I was like, where are their fans at? And he laughed at me. He was like, man, you really think their fans can come in this gym? Like, they would kill them. (laughs) So I was like, oh, man, what have I gotten myself into? But, yeah, it was this amazing feeling. It definitely was.
1: It's so cool. It's incredible because so many people are going to be so enthralled by your NBA career and thinking about the Pistons and all. Oh, I can't wait to listen to that part. And that was uh, honestly one of the most fun segments I've ever recorded and thinking about, you know, the flare guns and the quarters and, 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 and the speakers. <laughs> I, and I, I said three I said three things, you but I missed like another five or six that you mentioned. So definitely uh, <laughs> exactly. a lot of fun thinking about all that craziness. Also curious about all the great guys that you played against, maybe that maybe people in the U.S. don't know about, right? Like Big, big Sofa, right? Everyone called him Baby Shaq. He's yes. one of the most polarizing guys maybe ever. And people don't know about him or the guys, of course, other guys like Papa Nicolao and, and people like that that, that maybe has short since the NBA. Um, do you have any uh, like, yeah, oh my God, people like that too, where I watch them now I'm playing for the Greek national team and maybe I yeah. kind of know who they are just because of of, of my heritage, but so many other mm-hmm. people don't. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit about maybe that, right? So everyone maybe thinks about, oh, you were teammates with NBA greats like like Rip Hamilton, uh, Ben Wallace, but there's also so many other guys you played with in Greece that I'm sure you also think similarly about.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like, um, you know, I played against a lot of great Americans, you know, on that team but as far as the Europeans, there was it was an awesome collective unit, you know what I mean? And they were the they were the glue for the team, for sure. And the list goes on. The Olympiacos was was full of a lot of people that actually was dominant, you know, in their, their arena as far as the uh, where they're from. You know, Lithuania, I had Matskiowskis, you know, who was an assassin as far as the three-point range. Sophocles, the guy you mentioned, if you saw this guy, you would think Godzilla that's the first thing that would come out your mouth, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I can't lie to you. I was really happy. So Focles was on my team, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I remember calling for pick the roll every time for this guy. And I was wide open. Like I was <laughs> wide open every time. Yeah. But was another guy. Um, he was in, you know, his, his younger days, um, as far as just developing and knowing, you know, what he couldn't, can, can and can't do. But He's a force to be reckoned with as far as right now, as far as the national teams and stuff like that. But back then, he was really a great prize to have, you know, a seven-footer that can spread out the, the the lane so I can actually drive and, you know what I mean, get rid of the big man so I can dunk on whoever that was coming up next, you know. The game was really fun playing with these guys. It was really fun for them welcoming me, knowing where I was coming from. I was really just a sponge to knowing, you know, their their history of where they came from more than anything too well. Even though it took me a long time, I was a little naive uh, from the standpoint of just me just opening up and being like well-rounded of really embracing the culture of what has in front of me. It took me a minute, I'll be honest with you. And then once I actually started to really welcome it and go out, enjoy the the, the fruits and labors of, of what Athens has to have, talking to the, uh, the team, you know what I mean? Not just been a loner. Um, my game went to a whole nother level. So I really respect those guys for actually taking on that slack of me being a, a silly young kid from that standpoint and really opening it up. And we should have accomplished a lot more great things. But at the most important thing, um, we got a brotherhood for sure. So I call those guys my brothers for helping me and pushing me my first year.
1: Oh, yeah. Lo- love hearing about that. And it's and, and incredible thinking about the brotherhood that you made and all the all, all, all the guys there that you play with. And, of course, there are definitely some other Americans and NBA guys that, that made up those rosters as well. Mm-hmm. Thinking, though, about that, I, I have to ask, were there any maybe words, I, I know you, it was it was years ago when you were in Greece, that maybe you still remember to this day any any Greek words that really stuck with you? Oh, there's one, there's, 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 there's one right answer.
0: Oh, you already know. The first one is Malacca. For sure, (laughs) you already know. And and Malacca means a million things and it can mean one thing, you know what I mean? It can mean so many things. In Greece, everybody's so relaxed and calm. Avre means, you know, that means tomorrow, you know, like relax, we'll do it tomorrow. Everything's tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. You know, like I wanted internet and I was so adamant about getting internet. Uh, Everything was tomorrow. And I remember I had to force them. I had to really sit out of practice to get internet man can you believe this you know so and so they actually took me serious I had to sit out of practice for those standpoints so it wasn't always peaches and creams from the from the organization you had to actually pull a card or two to actually get things done but uh, for the most part it was just a, a great experience for sure
1: much fun talking about that and, and thankfully you, you did get the question right in terms of what was the one word that you remembered all these years later right of course is, is it has to be Malaga <laughs> but and <laughs> thinking about uh then obviously transitioning right so you're going to FC Barcelona right you're also still still playing in Europe can you talk to us maybe a little yeah. bit about, about about that change what that was like and then obviously eventually we'll, we'll talk about obviously how you got back into the NBA
0: to be crazy, to be honest with you, I was actually going to go back to the NBA after the Olympiacos. What happened, um, I think the very last game of my Panathinaikos playoff run, I actually did a spin move, went around. So please set a screen. I jumped up and I dunked the ball. I was completely fine. Two hand dunk. And uh, the game was already determined, I think, at the time that they were winning. But then I came down. and When I came down, I felt a, a small pop in my knee. Right then I felt my knee actually growing. Substantial amount, so I was like, "Man, I think I'm, I think I'm done." You know, so I called for a sub. You know, push come to shove, I didn't get a um, a second notice. I just told them like, "I got to go back." Uh, the season was over from that standpoint. When I came back. I had a little meniscus swelling in my knee that I had to get a little scope clean. They were like, "It's going to take a little bit of time." Uh, and this was my first injury. Uh, me getting adjusted to, you know, recovering back from something like that. It's not nothing devastating at all. It's actually normal, just playing a little wear and tear. Once I did that. I didn't want to come back into any NBA arena, especially the Detroit Pistons, where I was going to be a weakness and showing that I was still injured. You know, so I told my agent, listen, I'll go back to Europe one more year, you know, but you gotta actually make sure that the team knows that I need some some more time to recover to get back to myself. We actually saw that Barcelona was in the race, not getting a chance to play against them in the Euro League, unlike what they're doing now, they're playing against everybody. I knew Barcelona just from you know, from the football organization, how huge of a team they were from that standpoint. I knew Navarro was there. I knew, uh, you know, a lot of other guys that were there, Yaka And it was a great team, you know, to be around. Especially coming from California, it seemed like it was a California-type atmosphere. a uh, Spanish, me plan, in L.A. It was a lot more easier to adjust to rather than Greek, <laughs> you know, translations. So we chose Spain, Barcelona. Um, it was the best choice. Unfortunately, it was the... Toughest choice, to be honest with you, with the coaching staff. I shouldn't say staff, with the coach of Dushko Ivanovic. He was a sergeant from that standpoint. And me coming off an injury was, man, it was devastating trying to get back and recover to game speed, knowing that he was drilling everybody 100, 2,000 percent, you know. So it was just one of those things where I had to suck up. And I remember a conversation I had with the player that I played with. He actually said it was Henry Domerkin. I played with him in uh, Olympiacos, and I called him. I said, man, what do you think about me going to Barcelona? He was like, man, listen, I know Dusko ivanovich just from the experience I had, is a brutal coach, and he's going to run the hell out of you. But what makes you more difficult than a next player that's going to come in? Somebody's going to take that role. Somebody's going to take that, you know, that opportunity. So he's going to do it. Why not you? You know what I mean? Just take on that task of actually getting through it, and you should see a better day, a better light. So... I really locked into that with him saying that. And I remember that to this day. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to let somebody take that shining opportunity being in that platform. So um, no matter what, I was young. I was eager to be on the Barcelona's team and show that jersey. And uh, I took that chance for
1: sure. Love it, and then obviously, obviously, it's it's a great um, story in terms of taking that chance and and, and betting on yourself, right, and, and doing that sort of thing. Um, eventually, mm-hmm. obviously, you you, may, you you find your way back into the league, right, going back to the Pistons. Yeah. Talk a little about maybe just what it was like going back into the league, and then obviously, eventually, uh, going over to the Clippers with a young DeAndre Jordan, and, and that and that the situation now, which obviously is much different than the situation you have at the Pistons.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it was great to have Detroit Pistons understand that I was going back for another year. It was an amazing feeling that, you know, I came home the first, very first week I had a workout with the Detroit Pistons after seeing them in the summer league and, and playing with them and watching them play in the summer league, sitting up there with Joe Dumars, and He was like, man, we want you back. We saw what you can do and we're excited about having you back as a position for you. So I was really thrilled from that standpoint. I was ready. I really was. I was ready. I was Uh, The first year I wasn't ready. I'll be honest with you. It was just a more odd factor of me actually being there, putting on that jersey every day. But um, just playing against, you know, the elite players in EuroLeague that could be potentially in the NBA from the European standpoint of players and the NBA standpoint of Americans. You know, every single night I felt that I was ready. I was ready to contribute to an NBA team. Unfortunately, when I came back, they already drafted two sensational guards, you know, Aaron Afalo and Rodney Stuckey out of Indiana. So I'm sorry, I was out of Washington and uh, Aaron Afalo out of UCLA. So being the fact that Lindsey Hunter was, wasn't there at the time, Carlos Arroyo, Carlos Delfino left. Those two first rounders, you know, actually took up a lot of slack. that was my guy's name. Will Bynum, too you know? Uh, So we had a lot of guard play that we had to compete for spots and potential. So it was an off and on battle to actually see myself again in the same situation, knowing that I was actually proving myself all the way up into Olympiacos and Barcelona, that I can actually compete at any level. Just having that as far as, as motivation and coming to practice every day in Detroit and actually going at it with these guys that are getting a lot of minutes, man, I was really like, devastated to the point where like I really wanted to play. So, um that was the most important thing just letting the organization know that I was ready to play and if there was any time for me, let me know. So, they actually put me down to the G League again where I averaged like 20 points and like 7 rebounds and you know, it was almost like a not a joke, but it was just more like come on man, like I did this already, you know? So, I'm ready to play. It was an awesome feeling to know that Joe Dumars took me serious. And he traded me back home. Crazy story of it all. It was an all-star break. And I was ready to come back to Detroit to actually train for the second half of the season. I get a call from Dumars on the phone, in the car, going on the plane, Uh, about to go on the plane LAX. He was like, where are you at? And I was like, I'm about to come back to Detroit a little bit early to, you know, work out. So he said, Nah, I don't go nowhere. We traded you to LA. You're going to be taking a plane trip to meet the team in Phoenix for the first game. So I was kind of disappointed. I was pissed. But at the same time, he actually explained to me that it was a business and it was more than anything, no hard feelings at all. He wanted to see me play. He saw that I was unhappy and there was nothing he can do from that standpoint, just being a GM. You know, he wasn't a coach and uh, he tried to push me to get the coach to actually play me when there was time. I took it with a grain of salt. Like I was really happy to be with an organization. Just all the energy that I had as far as playing that actually had a spot for me to play. The Clippers playing so terrible that year, I was like, there's no reason for me not to play. You know what I mean? So I was happy about that standpoint. Being in L.A., being an L.A. kid, seeing my family play, uh, watch me play, seeing my, my friends watch me play, my high school friends, my, you know, everybody that actually knew me. It was really fun from that standpoint, just being in L.A.
1: It's got to be so much fun playing for your home crowd. And I, I can imagine definitely, I think, think for going into detail about that phone call because it's something that I'm sure so many American players have to have to face all the time. And it's, yeah. it's incredible having that little insight on, on what that kind of that phone call is like. From from that point on, you went over to Italy and that's kind of where you've been for the last few years. I'm curious maybe how, how that's been going for you. Um, being over there in Italy, playing over there in Italy, enjoying life um, over there, six hours away. Yeah.
0: No, no, it's amazing. You know, I embrace the culture, just the European style, on and off the court. I really feel comfortable here. Um, It's no stress at all from California, but at the same time I'm on the outskirts of, of just being comfortable in a way where I can actually see my kids grow up. Two daughters that I have, that they can grow up in this environment. There's so a lot of things that's going on outside of the realm of politics and a lot of other things that I don't feel comfortable going back home to, to the U.S. right now um, dealing with those issues uh, unless they get resolved in that matter. So, me just knowing that my kids are, you know, bilingual, they're learning Italian, they're learning, you know, me taking, talking to them in English, they're learning so much in a timely fashion where they don't have no stress of competing against anything, but you're just enjoying their family, their grandma, their, their grandpa here, and uh, it's a lot more free time, where we can actually just enjoy ourselves as, as a family more than anything.
1: Well, that's so huge. And, and the lifestyle decisions, right. And, and, and all that kind of background on, on kind of the decisions that you made, but also maybe how your kind of career is put out for you. It, it's incredible to think about in, in terms of looking at your co- career and its totality and all the stops you made and all, all that, all that cool stuff that happened there. I'm curious about some of your entrepreneurial endeavors, especially thinking about, right. Aqua Premier Sports and, and right. And then that whole agency thing. So I'm curious, but right? so you've been doing yeah. that for a while. What, what kind of made yeah. inspired you to start that?
0: No, I I, I got to give it up to my uh, to my partner Philip Scott. He's done an amazing job just holding down the fort as far as me playing basketball for so long. We started Acquire Premier in two thousand eight. You know what I mean. And the time that I've actually been there was only time in the the, the window that I had as far as the summertime to get back and give back. Um, but he's been holding on so long throughout this you know throughout this trial, of keeping the brand strong. You know, Acquire Premier. So I'm Acquire and he's Premier. As far as his name is Philip Scott, so we merged the company of Acquired Pro together, and we've been actually been able to touch a lot of lives. As far as the youth, as far as training style of what we have, as far as the mentorship that what we have, and just giving back. As far as a consultant situation where they can come to us for any I- information, they can ask us any questions. I'm blessed to have the media and social media where they can contact us, whether if I'm way out here in Italy or you know wherever he's at in San Dimas and. You know, being the fact that we don't have, you know, the facility right now to actually play and and God willing, it will open up. We'll get back to our regular suit for sure. But Akron Premier is definitely a brand where we started from nothing, uh, just the idea and not knowing where it was going. You know, being an entrepreneur, you don't know where things are going to go and take place or who's going to come in your life to help you along the way. So we had a lot of great things that that came across and we learned a lot of things as far as just developing Akron Premier as well, too.
1: Oh, I mean, it's, it, it's awesome thinking about just being, obviously being an entrepreneur obviously doing something, right. When you're in, uh, in season, right. You're, you you have this playing career, but you're also doing stuff off the court. I mean, obviously, but also obviously remembering how important it is to have that good support system, by right? having, yeah. having friends uh, that can help you with that, right. Having, having someone that is able to, to help you along the process sure. because no one can do everything by themselves. And we spoke that a bunch of times, right. Whether it's your career and, and, and having people believe in you or, may, or it's off the court and having people that can help support your business endeavors. Yeah. Um, And a little more recently, right. You have uh, a and I'm curious if you talk to us a little bit about that, because it, it it's, is it a little bit on the, uh, on the same breath? Um, is that great? Like what, what are you kind of doing there and how, how, how do those two kind of play together in, in terms of what you're doing off the court?
0: So B rules is literally a trading company. I was actually blessed to hear this opportunity really from a great mentor of mine, pretty much this understanding the the way of the world is where it's going digitally wise, you know, currency, you know, cryptocurrency, a lot of other things that come into place of AI technology and how to developing see yourself winning in a situation where, you can take advantage of this opportunity. We hear a lot of things as far as cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, booming, but we don't know how to get our hands on these situations, you know? So it goes hand in hand with that standpoint of just learning how to actually double dutch and jump into the mix of transitioning yourself into a great space where you see the wave coming and you don't know how to take on. Uh, But the most part that B-Rule holds your hand from the standpoint of how you actually make residual money in the palms of your hand. You know, and that's through, you know, your phone. And so I was blessed to actually hear this opportunity when the first wave of the vaccine, COVID-19 happened. And I learned this skill in a short period of time because everybody was sitting down at that home. And it really has been a beacon and a blessing for me and my family. You know, that's the reason and why for me actually taking on this trading platform. Is to give back to my kids so they can actually learn how to develop a skill where they can make money through the palms of their hand because that's their future for sure.
1: Oh, I mean, I I love kind of hearing that story in terms of what you're doing off the off the court to kind of set yourself up like that. You're still obviously playing. Once you stop playing, do you, do are you going to go kind of full court press on both these initiatives? Do you have any other ideas as to what your off the court stuff looks like? like what what's next for Alex Acker? I'm curious.
0: <laughs> Man, I'm going wherever wherever God takes me. You know, I I never knew that, you know, I would be from from where I'm at in, in California to where I'm at now. You know, I could not map that out physically of pinpointing my accurate, you know, uh, ETA, you know, right now. So uh, I'm really blessed to be in a situation where I can get back from afar. I'm really blessed to be in a situation where I'm safe and my family's safe. And uh, the list goes on is just how many doors God's going to be willing to open for me. And I'm um, just going in with a force of him leading the way. And um, just actually, you know, when I do retire more than anything, I definitely just want to just give back as far as the leadership and understanding of what I've gotten and just be, you know, a sponge to anybody that's coming in and learning from their trials of where they're going and see if I can help them along the way, you know, but from Ackroyd Premier standpoint, That's definitely going to be something that's going to be there um, where I can actually have my legacy moving forward as far as a basketball standpoint. I mean, the B-Rule situation is definitely going to be there for anybody that wants to learn how to be an entrepreneur in their own space and and get residual income and learn how to actually use the weapons and tools that everybody has as far as social media, as far as cell phone. You know, so uh, from those two things moving forward, you know, uh, as well as the, uh, the agency felt that um, I could talk all day about that, but you know, I've had a lot of agents in my life as far as the ups and downs that I've been through as far as playing basketball, and uh, I just learned so much from the do's and don'ts of what's needed from a player standpoint and, and what is actually needed. You know, me coming from California or the U.S., um, I really know what you know a player from my caliber or from any standpoint that needs that's coming over to Europe. Just to have a, a, a understanding from that standpoint, I can help a lot of athletes um, move faster in the pace of you know blocks and barriers that they're going through um, with their agency and, and getting to know them a lot more better and what they need as far as how to actually carry themselves and be you know the elite players that they need to be
1: oh i mean for sure. And it's incredible thinking about being someone that's currently playing and can do both, right? Can do stuff on the court, can do stuff off the court. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really awesome hearing from you and and your story and and, and really putting everything together in terms of both your on the court stuff, your off the court stuff, and everything in between. So I thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your insight on, on your career. It was really a blast having you on the show.
0: No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Definitely fun. Thanks for listening to Gen Z Hoops sure to follow, like,
1: and subscribe on Instagram, LinkedIn, and all major social media platforms at Gen Z Hoops. You can tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and every other podcast platform on the planet. Get ready for the next episode.